You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Will. It's good to be with you guys today. I want to personally welcome back the 17 of you that were here last week before the game. It's good to see you guys again, too. I get it. There was a thing going on over there. I was into that thing, too. I had spent, you know, let's be honest, the last several months reading, trying to find information about the team. I'd heard about all the young talent. I'd heard we might have a quarterback who can throw the ball to our team. I'd heard all these things. And I was eager, but I'd also, you know, I've been there before, so I didn't get my hopes up. It's all speculation and hype, right? And sure enough, kickoff comes, they drive down the field, we can't stop the run, it's like the last year all over again. And I told my boys, like, well, that's us. Then this happened. Next drive, we march right down the field, score again. And in my mind, I thought, oh, this is for real. We are back! <laughs> Do you feel that? It wasn't the speculation and the hype. It wasn't any of that. It was the touchdown pass. That's when I knew we were back. We weren't going to back down anymore. And as silly as this transition is going to seem, the same kind of thing happens in our lives with God. All right? I'm going to let you just get over that for a second. But it's real. Have you ever had experiences where there are things that you believe about God, but then something happens that makes that belief real in your life? Like you believe God provides, but then he provides for you in very specific ways that are just beyond comprehension, and you realize, oh, this is real. God provides. Or you know God listens to prayers, but then he answers a prayer in a way that you just can't explain, and it's made real to you. You know God's powerful, but then you see him do something that literally could not be done by human means. It's beyond human means. And you go, man, God really is powerful. Those experiences make real to you things that you already believed or had heard about. I love it when things like this happen. I love hearing the stories. I love getting goosebumps because it it reminds me and assures me that my belief in God is not theoretical. In fact, I don't just have beliefs in God. I have a real, live God who's at work in the world. We have a God who came into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, took on flesh. And we looked at this last week. This Jesus came to ordinary people. In Matthew 4, it was just four fishermen. And he says to those guys, hey guys, come and follow me. Now, when Jesus says, come and follow me, if anybody said that in that day, it had the meaning of literally coming with, being with, observing, asking questions, trying to learn how that person or the teacher thought, how they acted. It was an apprenticeship. If you wanted to be a silversmith, you would apprentice to a silversmith and learn how to do the things that he does. And so when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, come with me and learn how to live life like I live life. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you got to get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not the sort of prize that God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to it, 
the spray will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. And that's what we're talking about this fall. We're talking about getting up close and personal to Jesus, such that his life spills over into ours. And we're, to do this, we're looking at various encounters that people have with Jesus in the book of Matthew. And so we looked in Matthew 4 where Jesus kind of gives us the introduction to his ministry. He says, here it is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, which we didn't look at, you just get a big sermon, the longest sermon we have of Jesus, where he explains and illustrates what life in the kingdom looks like. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, you get this string of miracles, like no less than 10 demonstrations of Jesus' power and, his, and how he heals people. There's just one after the other. And the reason Matthew, I think, strings these miracles together is to say something to us about Jesus. And that is that the salvation he brings uh, is not just theoretical. It's not just sort of big picture, long term. Jesus has something to say and to do in our actual lives now. The compassion of God on humanity and God's ability to save people is real right now. The healings themselves are also just pointers, right? They, they, they point us to a bigger reality. When Jesus heals people, it's a visible expression of his power and his ability to save people from a deeper sin, a deeper sickness uh, that can't be cured apart from God. Our aim as we look at these stories is to get into the shoes of the characters, to come before Jesus as they did, so that we might experience him as they did, his love, his grace, his power made real in our lives. In a culture that is so surface level, so politically correct, so plastic, I just think we are desperate for the real thing. And the real thing in relationship to God The way you get the real thing with God is by simple faith. Where there is faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes real to us the realities of God's kingdom among us. And so in this story, I just want to see three things about faith. The kind of faith that really gets hold of God. Faith goes to Jesus Faith sees the connection between the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus. And then finally, faith gets firsthand knowledge. Let's just look at each of these. First, faith goes to Jesus. Let's pick up in the story in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Okay, so stop there. Capernaum is where Jesus kind of made his home base. Uh, people in this town would have heard stories about what he could do, and including this centurion who comes forward. A centurion is just like an, a captain in the Roman army. He's in charge of 100 soldiers. They were well-paid, well-connected, powerful people. We're looking at a man who knows how to get things done. Except this man has found himself in a situation that is beyond his resources, beyond his means. His servant is suffering, and there's no cure. 
he hears that Jesus is back in town and he knows that Jesus could heal his servant and so he should just go find him, right? Yeah, except that it's, it's not that simple. It's actually a pretty complex situation because here is a high-ranking official in the sort of despised occupying army. Uh, they're not wanted in Capernaum. On top of that, he's, a, he's an unclean Gentile. For this man to go to a Jewish healer, a Jewish teacher, he would have to overcome all kinds of barriers, social barriers, political barriers, religious barriers, racial barriers. It's probably worth just stopping for a second and thinking, what would those barriers be like in our context, like for you? What would, you, would keep you from going to Jesus to ask for help, or going to anyone, for that matter, to ask for help? For this man to go to Jesus would not be an easy thing. But he, he doesn't have a choice. He has no options. And so he goes. And here we see a very simple but very essential thing about faith, and that is this. Faith goes to Jesus. In our culture, people talk a lot about faith. And what gets emphasized typically is uh, not where the faith is directed, but sort of the quality of the faith, right? Like, or the quantity of how passionate someone is or how committed they are in their faith, you can have faith in anything. That doesn't really matter. What matters is, is that you're true to yourself, that you stay committed, that, you, that you're positive about it all the time, no matter what. So it's not where the faith is directed. It's just the, the sort of emotion or passion of the faith that matters in our culture. But that's not what Jesus says about faith. He doesn't say that the issue with faith is how much you have or how strong it is. He says, look, even faith the size of the grain of a mustard seed could move mountains, on one occasion, a dad comes to him and he says, my son is, is suffering, he's sick. If you can do anything, please help. And Jesus goes, what did you say? If I can do anything? And he tells the guy, look, all things are possible for him who believes. And the dad, just trying to stay in the game, says, okay, then I believe. But help my unbelief. Right? This guy is on such thin ice when it comes to faith. But the little faith that he has, it's in Jesus. And Jesus heals his son. Christian faith is not a general belief in God. It's very specific. It's confidence in a person and what he can do. The important thing is not the amount of faith, but where faith is directed. By the way, everyone has faith in something. Everyone. In Luke's account of the story, you see there are these Jewish men who come and sort of vouch for the centurion. They're like, no, no, he's a good guy. He's helped us out with the synagogue. He deserves your help. You see where their faith is? Their faith is in merit. It's a performance. They believe Jesus can help this guy, but the basis of why he should help is that he's a good guy and that he deserves it. In a minute, we'll see that the centurion comes and he has a totally different story. They say he's worthy, and he says, no, I'm not worthy. The centurion says, look, if, if you're going to help me, it can't be on the basis of my worthiness, because we all know that's not going to work. It has to be for some other reason. It has to be the basis on, of your goodness. It has to be the basis of your worthiness. See, the religious leader's faith points to their resume. The centurion's faith points to Jesus. Even people who don't believe in God 
have faith in something. I remember talking to my brother one time, and uh, we get into this spiritual conversation, and at some point, the conversation always gets to this place where he just throws his arms up and goes, eh, who knows? Nobody can really be sure that they're right about anything related to God. And I say, okay, except that how do you know that nobody can be sure that they can know anything about God? Like, are you sure about that? And then at that point, I'm just the annoying little brother and the conversation's over. It's like, done. But the answer to that is faith. The only, I mean, my brother can't prove that nobody can be sure about God. That's a statement of faith. And he has staked his whole life on that statement of faith. Everybody has faith in something. This powerful man may have had at one point faith in his resources, but now he's in a situation where they won't do. He's helpless. He doesn't know what to do. And so he goes to Jesus. And look what happens in verse 11. He just, he just simply states his case. He says, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. That's it. No backstory, no elaboration, just the simple, desperate facts. And I want you to notice that in this story, anyway, Jesus doesn't require more than this. The guy just goes and says, here's what's going on with my life. And it seems that just simply telling Jesus what's going on in our life somehow sets his saving work into motion. You see, it's not the passion or even the persistence of the guy's faith. It's where his faith goes that matters. He goes to Jesus. I want you to just note one thing. This is sort of unrelated but helpful. The only reason this guy finds himself in this situation is because of his relationship to the servant. Because he has gotten into some connection with someone else that he cares for, that he feels responsible for, and they they need help. You see, an insulated life is a very self-sufficient life. Insulated, self-sufficient people tend not to go to Jesus because they've got it all taken care of. But once you get into real relationships with people, once you start caring for people and even feeling responsible for them, and things come up in their lives that are just baffling to you, totally beyond your resources, that's when you have no choice but to just go with them to Jesus and ask for help. This is, this is what we hope happens in gospel communities. There is a reality that the more annoying or frustrating a gospel community is, maybe that, to that degree God is trying to use you to help people, to go with them to Jesus. I don't think God's interested in making our gospel communities comfortable and insulated. I think he wants to make them messy and desperate. Some of you are like, amen, then I'm in a good GC. We're good. (laughs) Faith goes to Jesus. Second thing is, faith sees in Jesus a connection between his person and his word. Look at verse 8. Jesus has said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is a really interesting little twist, right? Because the guy has come to Jesus, and he's asked for help, and Jesus, without even hesitating, has said, yeah, I'll come help. Like, you you couldn't ask for a better outcome, right? Right? But then the guy says, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 you you can't come. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. There's several explanations for this. Maybe the simplest one is just that he's mindful of cultural sensibilities. 
He knows that for a Jew to go into a Gentile's house would make them unclean, just doesn't want to offend, doesn't want to put Jesus in that position. It's a dilemma, right? But it's not a chasm that faith can't cross. Look at his solution. He says, I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come, so just say the word. Just do it from here. You don't even have to, just right here, just say it, and it'll, it'll be so. In many of the instances when you see Jesus heal people in scriptures, he's usually with them. He's talking to them. He's touching them even in ways. And you might get the sense that the the sort of range of his power has to do with his physical presence. But the centurion sees in Jesus something that is way beyond that. He sees in Jesus a person whose power has no boundaries. And he reasons it out from his own experience. He says, look, I'm a man under authority. I have people under my authority. And in my little world of power, I know how this works. My words become actions. I just just love this guy. He's he's got a no-nonsense approach to faith. He understands how it works, that your power extends as far as your authority extends. And he's just saying to Jesus, I'm pretty sure that your authority extends at least to my house. So just say the word, and it'll be so. When Jesus, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. It's the only time this ever happens. He, he is amazed at someone's faith. This Gentile, this religious outsider, he gets it. He sees the connection between the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus. His word has power because he has authority. Listen, if you want to get up close to Jesus, get up close to his words. His words reveal his person. The Bible is not just true information about God. God's words carry in them his power. And it is accessed by real people in real life by simple faith. A pastor asked me a couple weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the fall semester, and he said, what do you want to see God do at Providence this fall? And, and this, the first thing that came to my mind was, I want to see what God would do with a bunch of people who read the Bible. And just come to it in faith. I want to see what would happen with those people. Now, I know you read the Bible. But I also know, and I've heard over and over and over from you, that you don't read it as much as you want. And you wish you understood it better. And you wish you had more discipline or more energy for it. And I just wonder if part of the reason you struggle to read the Scriptures consistently is because of how you think of them. Like, if you think of the Bible as just good information about God, I can see how you would lose motivation for that. But what if your primary thought about the Scriptures was that in those pages is the presence and the power of God? I think that would change things a little bit. I was talking with a a missionary friend of mine who, who serves in Morocco And he was just telling me stories of how God was changing people's lives, how these people were so eager to read the scriptures, of the joy that was in their life, some pretty miraculous stories included in there. And I just said, man, 
how do you, what do you focus on with these people? He said, oh, two things. The authority, I mean, the lordship of Jesus and the authority of the scriptures. That's it. We just want them to get that Jesus is the king, a good and benevolent king, and that his words have effectual power in every area of their lives. The lordship of Jesus and the authority of the scriptures. If they get that, they've got it. The centurion gets that. He calls him Lord, and then he sees in this Lord an authority that means his word has power. When I uh, first became a Christian, I I was a little confused by the Bible, a little frustrated with it, uh, because it seemed to be like a lot of rules. I'm not the kind of person that likes any rules whatsoever. But I was a Christian, and this is what Christians do, so I thought I'd give it a go. And I actually did pretty good, I thought, you know, just trying to do what God said, follow the rules and whatnot. Um, But then there were seasons where I felt really distant from God, and I thought, man, what's this all about? I'm, I'm doing it. I'm following the rules. Why do I feel so distant from God? And so I would have times where I would just be like, oh, forget it. And I would throw it out. Like I'd stop reading the Bible and I would just tell myself it's, it's better not to be legalistic. We'll just, we'll sort of free spirit this thing. And then I would end up feeling just as empty as I had before and I could not figure out. I'd done it both ways. Along the way, it hit me that Christianity is not about keeping the rules or not keeping the rules. It's about a relationship with a person. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine a teenager. We'll call him Max. Max lives on his own, which is such a great life for a teenager. No authority figures, no rules. You just do whatever you want, whenever you want. Uh, one day, Max met a boy named Sam. Sam had such a normal life, lived in a house with a family and that sort of thing. Max just thought, that is so boring. He asked Sam one time, what's it like in there? And Sam was like, well, it's fine. You know, I mean, we have to do this and that, and I have a curfew, and I got to, you know, turn in my phone to my parents at night and that sort of thing. And Max was like, oh, that sounds awful. How do you live like that? And in fact, he really wanted to know. He was like, okay, I want, I want to experience this. And Sam said, that's, that's fine. You can come stay at my house for the weekend. And so Max went with Sam to stay at his house for the weekend. They got there Friday just before dinner. And so they get in, and quickly, before Max even knows what's going on, they're having to help make the salad and set the table. they got to wash their hands before dinner. This is just miserable. They get to dinner, and Max is like, this is annoying. I'm hungry. Can we just eat already? But the dad says, a blessing. And then, then they start to eat. The parents ask the kids about their day. They have a little conversation. They share stories, just normal stuff. If somebody chewed with their mouth open or got too silly, the, the parents would say something about it. Max just watched the whole thing go down. After dinner, they had to help clean up. They had to do dishes. They had to get their homework done. They had to get ready for the next day, and Dad was making sure that all of these things happened. At night, um, Dad put all the kids to bed. They read a story. They said prayers. He said, I love you. Lights out. And Max was like, it's 9.30. I am not anywhere close to tired. But those are the rules. Lights out. On Monday, Max went back to his life of freedom, but he had this ache in his heart. He missed being at Sam's house, and he couldn't quite figure out why. He certainly didn't miss the rules, did he? The more he thought about it, the more he realized that the rules were not just about rules. It was more than that. 
the rules were actually ways that Sam's parents expressed love for their kids. There were ways that their, Sam's parents was trying to help him live a, a meaningful, happy life. He realized that, that um, leaving Sam's house wasn't just leaving the rules, it was leaving love. And this is kind of the thing that I realized. I realized that when I threw the Bible out and I stopped reading it because I didn't want to be legalistic, I wasn't just leaving rules. I was leaving a person. Because the rules, the words, reveal a person. And when I made that connection, man, the whole way that I approached the Bible changed. I started reading the scriptures in order to get to know Jesus. And I became to love them. I became to even want to do the things that he was saying to do. Not to follow the rules, but to live life with a person. I wanted to sit with Jesus and his family around the table, as it were, and enjoy their love. I think we all want to get in on what God's doing in the world. But to do that, you've got to get in his word. Are you willing to get in the word? Faith goes to Jesus, and faith sees in Jesus something more than just the person, but words that are connected to the person. And when those two things come together, when that connection happens, and then that connects to the reality of your lives, that's when you get firsthand knowledge of Jesus. That's when you get up close and intimate. That's when you experience how things about God are made real in your life. That's firsthand knowledge. Jesus is so taken by this man's faith that he uses it as a kind of an object lesson to teach on the importance of faith. Look at verse 11. He turns to the crowd that's there and he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Okay, so we've already seen that there are insiders and outsiders in the crowd, right? The insiders are the Jewish people. They're the people of God. They've got Abraham and Moses and David in their blood, right? They're in. And the Gentiles are the outsiders. Uh, They don't have the promises of God or the law of God. They're without hope in the world. The Jews think they're in because they, they grew up in the faith. They're church kids, right? But now here's this Gentile encountering Jesus. Never been to church before, doesn't know the rules of the game, but in terms of faith, he's absolutely lapping the church kids. And so Jesus says, I want everybody to take note. This is what I'm looking for. This is how you get into my life and how my life gets into you. It's not by ancestry. It's not by tradition. It's not by privilege. It's by faith. And then Jesus just drives it home with this image of this feast. Uh, when, when Jewish people thought about the day when God would come back and, and set everything right, that he would rule the earth, it would be shalom, holistic peace and joy. The, a common image was a feast, that they would sit around the table with the forefathers and dine and eat and be merry. And so Jesus takes this image 
and turns their assumptions about it totally upside down. He says, let's talk about the feast. There won't just be Jews at the feast. There's going to be foreigners there. People from all over the globe, east and west and north and south. Gentiles are going to lean up against Abraham and eat. It is so offensive to their ears. I mean, they could hardly stand to hear it. And they've got to be thinking, how does a Gentile get a seat at the table? And Jesus is saying, he gets a seat by faith. That's how you get to the table. Dining at the table is such a, a great picture of firsthand knowledge, isn't it? Just sharing a meal, laughing, telling stories, being right there. It's intimate. It's wonderful. That's what God has come to bring us. And I love it because the, here's this centurion who's saying, you know what, you shouldn't come over. I'm not worthy. It'll make you unclean. And Jesus is going, you know what, man? There's going to be a day when you come to my house and we are going to feast. And you've got what it takes to be there. You've got faith. The feast is a glorious picture of God's global mission to gather to himself people from every tongue and tribe and nation. But there's also a sober warning in here. Look what he says. While they're feasting, the sons of the kingdom, uh, sons of the kingdom would be ethnic Jews, people who grew up in the faith, so to speak. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Even if you don't know uh, Aramaic, this sounds bad, right? There's no good way to make this, make, make this out. Here's the picture. The picture is of a large house. And inside, there's a group of people who are eating together. They're having a party. And, and back from the house, kind of near the property line, in the shadows, there's a group of people who are looking in. They can see the light from the windows. They can hear the laughter but they just can't go in. And, and they're full of regret. That's what weeping and gnashing of teeth means. It's, it's a term of regret. They are, those who are in the darkness, they're a picture, I think, of secondhand faith. People who grew up in it, people who were around it, people that had heard things about God, that had Jesus in their midst, had every opportunity to take hold of him personally, but didn't. They grew up in the faith, but they didn't have faith. It's a warning to church kids, those of us whose faith might be in what we know or what people think about us. We're a good guy. Everybody knows that. He warns us not to shut us out, but that we might repent now and follow him. He's eager to help. Jesus is simply saying, listen, take note of this guy's faith and let it be a warning. Don't settle for secondhand knowledge. Come to me. Follow me. Trust me. And we'll do life together. There's one question that sort of just gets you all the way through this text if you're paying attention to it. And that is, okay, but this, this guy's servant got healed. And there's lots of stories like that. How do we come to God and ask in faith for things that aren't promised to us explicitly in the scriptures? Because God doesn't promise to heal all my situations, right? Make everything better in my life. So how do I live in faith in those moments? 
Let me just say two things, because that's a really complex but good question. Here's the first thing. We should go to Jesus believing that he can do whatever he wants. Right? We should go to him saying, you know what, if you just say the word, it'll be so. But we also realize that we're not in charge. And so we go to Jesus submissively. We bring ourselves underneath his authority. So we should ask him for help. We should trust him to work for our good, which is to say, we say to him, if you don't say the word, I'll still love you. I'll still trust you. I'll trust your sovereign care in my life. It's a hard road to walk, but in every situation, there's just more going on than we can possibly understand. And so we ask, we believe, and we rest in God's care for us. The best story I know, illustration of this, um, I heard this week, and I'll close with this. It's a guy named Dwayne Miller, who was a pastor in Brenham, Texas. He caught a flu virus, and I'm not a doctor, but it got into his vocal cords somehow and and permanently damaged the nerves there, and so he he lost his voice. He said it was like the worst case of laryngitis you've, you've ever heard. He would scream at the top of his lungs, and he would sound like this. That's all you could hear. And I've listened to an audio of, of him, and that sounds exactly like the audio. Um, he eventually had to resign, you know, because he was a preacher. And so he moved to Houston because his wife had to become the primary uh, income, source of income. He got a job that didn't require his voice. And they started attending uh, this large church in Houston. He had gone to 63 specialists and over 200 doctors on their teams. And the, and the result was the same all the way across the board. We don't know what's going on. There's no cure. So they're in this Sunday school class, 150 people in the Sunday school class, because that's how the Baptists do it. And they recorded, this is the only class in the entire church that recorded the lessons, because it was such a big class. And they were on tape cassettes. This gives you some time for reference at the back. Uh, at one point, their teacher had to leave uh, for some personal reasons. And so they asked Dwayne if he would teach the class. And he was like, don't, I can't talk. But they urged him. And he was like, no, 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 I, I really can't do this. And they said, no, no, we want you to do this. We'll get a microphone right there. You scream. We'll make the words out. And so he agreed to do it. And he got up to teach the first Sunday, and he had a, a really depressing week the week before. I mean, sort of life-ending type depression type thoughts. And he got up to teach, and he was just going to teach the lesson that was part of the curriculum. And it happened to be in Psalm 103. And so I've listened to the audio of this a number of times. It takes me every single time I do it. But he's assigned this passage, and so he begins to read the text. And here's, I won't do it in his voice, but here's what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And then he stopped a second just to teach on this, because it's important. He says, the psalmist writes, he heals all my diseases. And he says, I believe God heals people. And some people take it to the extreme to say that God heals everyone who believes in Jesus, and that's not right. And some people say, you know, we don't have miraculous things after the books of Acts, and that's not right. And the problem with both of those extremes is that they put God in a box, and God doesn't want to be in a box. And he says, I think God requires of me just to let him be God and for me to be me and let it be. As he's teaching on this text. Then he goes on, so the psalmist says, bless the Lord. One of his benefits is that he heals all my diseases. And then in verse 4, he says, he redeems my life from the pit. And when you listen to the audio, when he says the word pit, 
you hear it loosen up. It's literally like somebody was choking him, and then that moment their hand comes off and you hear the voice coming through. And he just keeps going. He says, we've all had experiences in the pit. And it comes out clear. And you can imagine how overwhelmed he is. He's trying to go on with the lesson because he's a preacher. We've got to get through it. But then he pauses, he fumbles a bit, he pauses again, and he just gets really emotional. And he says, I don't understand this right now. People begin to laugh nervously a little bit. A few claps are happening. He says, I'm not sure what to say or do. And then there's this long pause, and he says, it's funny to say this, but I'm at a loss for words. And people just erupt in laughter and crying, and people are cheering And he just says, thank you, Lord. He redeems my life from the pit. And not knowing what else to do, I think, he just reads the rest of the text. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not chide nor will keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're dust." This isn't everyone's story, but it is a reminder that we have a real, live God who's at work in the world, and he wants to show up in your life. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.